2: Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullenane. Welcome back to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. I wanted to share a little news with listeners before the start of this week's show. This month, we hit a massive 13,000 downloads, and in an effort to make the show a little more professional, I purchased a fancy new microphone. I hope you might notice the difference in sound quality. The show also includes one or two paid advertisements. These are included to offset some of the costs that are associated with running the show. And I dabbled with other ideas like Patreon, but ads seem to be the easiest way to pay for a portion of the hosting costs and the equipment. I hope they don't disturb the listening experience too much. And many thanks to everyone who is tuning in every week to hear more. We have got a great show planned today. It's a deep dive into the world of Woodrow Wilson, Jane Addams, and Theodore Roosevelt. And I'm joined today by Neil Langtoe, an award-winning historian with some fantastic books to his name, including Campy, The Two Lives of Roy Campanella, and Negro League Baseball, The Rise and Ruin of a Black Institution. His latest book, and the one we're going to be talking about today, is called The Approaching Storm. And the tempest at the heart of the book is World War I. Now, I suspect that most listeners of the show will have a pretty good knowledge about the war and a pretty good knowledge about the personalities that Langto covers. And those are Roosevelt, Wilson, and Adams. And all the changes that the World War wrought in the first 20 years of the century are sort of well-known and well-trod. The United States joined the war in 1917 after three years of isolation and neutrality. Wilson's reelection campaign in 1916 hinged on his ability to keep America out of the war. Adams, a pacifist, worked harder than anyone to promote American neutrality, and Roosevelt, for his part, called for intervention, louder than any other saber-rattler. All of that is in this book, but what the book also offers, in part because it's character-driven, is a number of other personalities that swirled around this storm. For example, Wilson's love affair with Edith Galt is in here. Roosevelt's health and the disunity within the women's peace movement is in here. And all of this factor in a way that other books about the war fail to depict. Books that deal exclusively with diplomacy or exclusively with institutions of the state miss the emotions and personal confrontations that come with these personal connections. And in this way, Langto gives us a fresh take with a fresh emphasis on this triptych of Roosevelt, Wilson, and Adams. Welcome to the show, Neil.
1: Thank you for having me on.
2: Well, a book about Theodore Roosevelt, Jane Addams, and Woodrow Wilson, probably the three best-known Americans in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, and uh, we've seen a lot of books about all three of them, certainly even some about, like, say, for example, one on Wilson and Roosevelt that comes to mind is the Cooper book, uh, the double biography. What do you think combining all of their stories into this historical narrative does for the the, the period? How does it re? Give us a different perspective on things.
1: I think it allowed me to tell this story of of how we got involved in World War I, which I think is really not well known to the American public. And it's so important because I think it had such an impact on what went on after the war, because if we hadn't gotten involved in the war, of course, there's a chance that the entire outcome of World War I would have been different. And I thought the best way to tell the story was through these three characters who are all intimately involved in in the decision and the process by which we go to war. You know, Roosevelt, Adams and Wilson. Uh, Best of all, they all knew each other. They were all progressives. They were all born roughly the same time. Uh, And I think they're all very fascinating individuals. So I think that, for me, was was the draw as far as bringing them together in this narrative. So it's 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 not just the story of how we got involved in the war. I think it's also a character study of three very different individuals.
2: Yeah, and th- you're right to say that they have these personalities that are oversized. And, th- and the fact that they knew each other so well and intimately, is it allows this story to really unfold in ways that we, okay, so we know the story. We know the stories of World War One. why the United States got involved. And we'll talk a little bit about that today, I think. But their stories and their rivalries or differences or their appreciation for one another is really what this story, I think, gets to in a way that other books don't. I mean, the Wilson Roosevelt rivalry is epic. I mean, you, though, tell us a little bit about when that starts. And you tell that story in a way that I don't think other authors get at. So you want to share with everyone how you think that relationship began in a sort of positive way and then
1: deteriorated? Well, they started out as fairly. I wouldn't say they were best buds, but they but they were friendly, they were friendly. I think in the 1890s, they first, their past first crossed. I think they were the same speech, speech-making engagement or something like that. And, and then when Roosevelt went to the White House, they had some, some uh, exchanges of correspondence. And I think Roosevelt was very pleased when Wilson was made president of Princeton. So they seemed to be on the same page up to that point, up to maybe midway through Roosevelt's administration. Um, But I think as as Wilson's own political ideas began to become more formed, he started to disagree with Roosevelt in a lot of matters. There's a quote in the book where Wilson was on, uh, on record as saying something like, every time Roosevelt has a thought, he seems to speak it, you know, which isn't always a good idea. So they were starting to get catty with one another, even in like, even in Roosevelt's first administration. And then, of course, once they ran against each other in 1912, and they disagreed over a number of different things, particularly the role of trust and whether trust had to be broken up and things like that, um, I think that's when the, the division really uh, was emphasized. But they were so different as as individuals. You know, Roosevelt, his obsession with masculinity and and, and manly prowess, and Wilson was anything but that. Um, you know, Wilson didn't, didn't have that same drive or, or, or interest in those kinds of things. I have a quote in the book where he said Wilson, I think, fired a gun once in his life. You know, someone like Roosevelt, who was firing a gun every other day, practically. So um, very, very different. Although I think Wilson, people tend to think of as being this, this kind of academic type. But you can see in my book, he was anything but that in his private life. And you know, there's large sections of this book devoted to his, his ferocious wooing of a, of a widow. Um, And, you know, he had a sense of humor. He could be very witty. He could be, you know, he had more personality than people realized. He didn't always show it to the public. The public saw him as kind of standoffish, but in his, with his own friends and family, he was actually pretty lively. And he, he got more than his share of little digs against Roosevelt, but never publicly. He never would, he would never speak out directly against Roosevelt, which of course drove Roosevelt crazy that he would never, ever say anything against him. It would, it, it was, I've quotes in the book of Roosevelt saying, was he timid? He's afraid of me, but he was, you know, he knew that's what irritated him most of all was to say nothing.
2: See, that's the, Those are the little bits that really make this story come alive for me. I mean, I've read biographies of Roosevelt and Wilson and their rivalry in the past, but there's an intimate nature to this biography. And of course, it's not just Roosevelt and Wilson, but there's this tortured relationship at times with Jane Addams, particularly Roosevelt's relationship with Adams. Who he criticized as the sort of peace at any price kind of pacifist, um, yet he was also able to see past that and become close with her, especially in 1912. So why was that relationship so much different than the Wilson relationship that Roosevelt had, where they really couldn't see past their differences?
1: It's interesting because Adams could see the good in Roosevelt. She knew that Roosevelt was very different from her on certain certain uh, certain viewpoints, um, but when Roosevelt was in the White House. Adams at that point was already a major figure in in the progressive movement. And she came to the White House a number of times and, you know, tried to push her progressive agenda on Roosevelt, who was moving more to the left with every year. Uh, And Roosevelt really liked her. He was he was very taken with her. You know, he said he wrote her a letter during when he was in the White House saying, you know, if all the progressives, all the reformers could be like you, I'd be, you know, I'd be delighted because a lot of them are extremists. You know, I think he thought that she was a a safe and sane reformer. So, he was very, very, very respectful of her. Uh, there, were, there was talk, and I don't know if Roosevelt ever denied them. I think Roosevelt even might have said it, that if he had been elected in 1912, he would have put Adams in the cabinet, which would have been a coup. He, she would have been the first woman in the cabinet before Francis Perkins in the 30s. So I think Roosevelt respected her ability. I think Roosevelt in general respected women's abilities more than Wilson did. Wilson was this, you know, this old fashioned view of women, as we know, uh, wasn't really in favor of suffrage till the last minute. I think Roosevelt could see that women had a lot to offer in the 20th century and could respect that. So Adams seemed to be on on Roosevelt's wavelength. Um, In 1912, she supported the Progressive Party. And you know that my book begins with the the Progressive uh, Convention, where Jane Adams seconds Roosevelt's nomination and Adams jumps head, foot, head first into his party because she knows that it's, it's pushing all the things she wants, all these reformer, all these reforms that she had been going for for years, the Progressive Party is, is coming out for in 1912. And, and Roosevelt's going that direction too. Roosevelt had never really drifted that far, but he's going whole hog into progressivism. So they seem to be on the same team and the same page in 1912. Some people around Adams thought she was making a mistake he said, How can you support that man with his battleships? You know, Roosevelt was already pushing on, I mean, battleships a year. And Adam said, Well, it was kind of hard for me to swallow the battleships, but all the good things that the Progressive Party and Roosevelt is going for, I can set that aside. She was a pragmatist. Um, so I think there was respect between the two. Um, I think Roosevelt realized how influential she was in America at that time, but the peace thing splits them apart. I mean, he cannot abide her peace activities uh, beginning in 1914. He calls her a foolish, foolish woman uh, many times, not in public, he's not that foolish himself, but he says it in private uh, a number of times. You know, my, my, my friend Jade Adams is so wrongheaded. He there's numerous letters where he's commenting on it, but he goes and visits her in 1916 because he knows she's influential and he, she's, he still would like her support if he can get it. So they, they maintain a pretty good relationship even though he disagreed violently with her about the war.
2: So the Adams relationship seems so integral to this. It's a triangle on the cover of the book, and it seems like it's a triangle of personalities as well. Adams's relationship with Wilson is equally fraught and equally, I suppose, the, the optimism that Adams has with Wilson's neutrality policies and his, especially his secretary of state, right? William Jennings Bryan and Adams have a, a bond over this, this pacifist agenda. How does that change, though, around 1917 when the U.S. Uh, decides to intervene in
1: the war? Well, Adams trusted Wilson. I think all the pacifists did because Wilson talked the talk. You know, He seemed to be genuinely interested in keeping the country out of war and to uh, having America play a role in, in ending the war. I mean, that's what Adams does from, from 1915 to about 17. She constantly is pushing and prodding him like. Do something? Can you do something? The whole issue she's putting was this conference of neutrals, which would be kind of a kind of a, a bridge to a larger peace peace uh, um, conference. And you know, Wilson listens to her and seems to be interested. You know, and he keeps telling her, "Well, time is not right. Time is not right." Uh, but in 1917, when at that point things have gone too far, as far as the Germans are concerned, and the Germans are have, have uh, brought back unrestricted submarine warfare, um, Wilson knows pretty much he's ready, He has to go to war and Adams goes to see him in early 1917 and, and tries to talk to him about this. And I think then, then she finally had an epiphany about Woodrow Wilson because Wilson said to her, if we don't get involved in this war, I'll be lucky to get in the peace conference through a crack in the door. And that kind of appalled her, you know, thinking this, this is really what it's all about, that Wilson has to be involved in the peace. peace. He's willing to throw our country into this horribly bloody war. Uh, so I think she realized at that point that Wilson was not quite the pacifist that she thought he was all that time. Uh, Wilson was a very skilled politician. I think sometimes he's not given credit for being how skilled he was. I think he he played both sides. He you know he played the pacifist a certain way, and he played those on the on the more aggressive military side who wanted to build up. He started to push in that direction as well. So um, he always was making sure he was covering all bases. But I think Adams. And some of the pastors were disenchanted with Wilson when he took the country into war in April 1917.
2: I think that's one of the things that people say about Wilson is that, you know, he sat on the fence a lot and he didn't take sides in order to please everyone, uh, often to his own detriment or to the detriment of the Democratic Party, certainly by 1918. Um, I, I can't get away from the, the the trilogy here, though, and the personalities, which is at the, the heart of the book. Um, first of all, why do you think personality is important in history? But second, if you've got these three characters that you know so well, and I feel like I know them pretty well now too, after reading the book and years of reading about Roosevelt, which one of them do you want to hang out with? Because I mean, for me, I can tell you, I'd like to sit down and have a beer with TR and Jane Adams. I'm far less interested in having a drink or a coffee with uh, w- with Wilson, even though I know he, he drank good scotch and he, you know, he, there's probably parts of him that would be interesting. I just can't uh, see myself having that sort of a uh, 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 warm uh, moment with with Wilson. I mean, wh- what about you? You know these people better than anyone.
1: I, I I would probably agree with you on that. I think I think Roosevelt and Adams had, had a certain joie de vivre about them. Uh, although Wilson, you know, people say that again. If you if you could get past his reserve, he could be be quite a delightful individual. You know, they say he told funny stories. He loved his limericks. You know, he. He actually could be a lot more congenial than you would think. But he he didn't like a lot of people. You know, there's Colonel House, who's, who's another figure who comes up quite a bit in my book. Um, House in his diary is always getting in little snarky comments about Wilson. And, he, and House says something like the president does not like people. He doesn't want, doesn't like company. And he, he didn't. He only he, he was a loner. I think he he liked being around a few people who, who he was comfortable with. But he's not someone who's who wanted to sit down and could sit down with a stranger and just and talk to them. Um, I have a quote in the book where someone said, I'd as soon slap Wilson on the back and say, hey, Woody, than I would, you know, you would never do that with what you do with Roosevelt. You say, hey, TR, or, or bully, whatever, but not Wilson. Um, Adams, I think, was, was was fairly outgoing, too, but she also could have a, have a cold side as well sometimes. I mean, she could be, she could be a, a, a very tough individual more than her you know people looked at her and said oh, she looks like a like a nice 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 middle-aged woman who dresses very very sensibly but she also could be a very tough very very strong personality and um you know if she didn't like something she also also could could cut people out of her life as well back to their
2: personalities what makes the the person the individual so important for history because i agree with you i think it is essential but i'd love to hear why you came to that conclusion
1: I think personality, we think with Roosevelt. He's someone you can, and you've you obviously studied Roosevelt a great deal. His personality, I think it drives so much so much of what he's doing. You know, it's like, it, it's almost, a, a, he cannot stand being topped by anyone. And I think the fact that Woodrow Wilson is in the White House, I mean, that itself, that another person is there and it's not him. I mean, his personality can't, can't bear that. I, I mean, I think he also can't bear when, you know, he's someone who, I don't want to call him a narcissist. That would be kind of, I think that would be cruel. But I think he, he's someone who, who would suck up the oxygen in any room he was in all the time because he just was so larger than life. I think that was a big part of of who he was, that he had to be this dominant figure. And I think that, that was a big part of his personality. Um, with Wilson, I think an important part of his personality was being a know-it-all justifiably. He was a brilliant individual. He did know it all, but sometimes being a know-it-all was not a good thing because he didn't take input. You see in my book, time after time, he, he doesn't care for his cabinet. He thinks they're all a bunch of nincompoops. He thinks his his, his, uh, his ambassadors are morons, basically. So He's someone, because he thinks he knows everything that served him well, quite often, but at times, it's not going to serve him well, as we see later on, and I think at Versailles probably is not an, an example, which I don't really get into too much in the book, but I think it's it's an example of, of Wilson overstepping his his knowledge base,
2: shall we say. Yeah, I think you're right, too, about Versailles. I, I couldn't agree more. I think he really does let a lot of the allied objectives override the ones that he, he arrived with, and... Uh, yeah, your book does a great job of adding these other characters, like you said, the ambassadors, the, you know, the cabinet members. And I was just wondering, at any point, did you think about adding another character to the trilogy and making it a square instead of a triangle? I mean, you talk a lot about William Jennings Bryan. He seems like a really important part of the story, naturally. Uh, but you talk a little bit about Debs. You certainly talk about Florence Kelly. I mean, there's, there's other people that could have featured here. Why these three and why not adding someone else?
1: I think if I added more, the book would have been even longer. It was, lo- it came out long enough as it was. Uh, the book is, I think, 590 pages of text, which is hefty, especially in these days when readers don't seem to want to go over 300 pages. So I think three, three was plenty, and I think three was enough for people to follow. Um, you know, when I when, when they were editing my book, sometimes they kept saying, "Well, you have to say their names again. People are going to forget." I feel like if I added another name, it would have been hard enough. So I think I I think three three majors who, as I said, were bound together on, on these issues, uh, and represented a different perspective worked. And I think three majors and then a bunch of minors. I, I like the way that that kind of uh, pushed the narrative along because you know you got house is a big part of the book. Um, particularly because of his diaries. I'm sure anyone listening to this show knows about House's House's diaries um, and how, how extensive they were. I mean, so he's a big part. He's a, he's another one. You I have mean, Henry Ford thrown in there as well, Ford being part of the peace movement. So he kind of flits in and out of the narrative as well. I and mean, you have people like uh, Schwimmer, uh, Rosika Schwimmer, who was a person people a lot of people don't know about, who was a hardcore pacifist, uh, very ahead of her time in her ways to the left of, of uh of, of Adams as far as the peace movement was concerned, but she's always in the thick of things as well. So I tried to keep the three driving the narrative along, but then also bringing these others who, who give us a little break sometimes from the three. Another one I didn't mention was James Norman Hall, uh, the, the American who goes to fight. Um, I, wanted to, I wanted to have one person in the perspective of an American who's fighting in Europe during the period where we're not involved in the war. And I thought Hall would be good because his letters have survived. I mean, he left behind some great correspondence of his time and serving in the British army. So I also kind of wove him in there as well.
2: Yeah, I think I just want the listeners to know that this book is not about three characters. I mean, in the first chapter alone, we meet Colonel House, of course. I'm pretty sure in the first chapter we meet Hall, who's in London and, and going to fight for, uh, for, for the British. Uh, we meet Walter Littman, we meet William Jennings Bryan. We say goodbye to Ethel Wilson each one of these chapters is really rich with a, with a sort of um, a subset of, of characters and personalities. So I suppose like the better question is really like, you know, is the approaching storm, you know, the, the, the storm of, of all of these uh, characters coming together too? Because for me, it just seemed like a really rich narrative that wasn't just three characters driving the book.
1: I think it's also the story of America at this time. I mean, I think it's, I, I really tried to capture the era. I, I think it's a really interesting time. A lot of Americans don't know much about. Maybe we're starting to know a little more about. It with this, we're interested in the in, the game is gilded interest, gilded age interest these days. Gilded age is hot these days, you know, with the with the show. And yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to. I, I wanted the reader not just to be bogged down with some of the heavy political stuff. This is some heavy duty stuff going on. I'm mean, because I'm covering stuff in Berlin as well. But I want people also to like what's going on in America and get some of that. Like I have stuff about polio, the polio epidemic of 1916. Uh, which affects all the main characters in some way. I mean, you know, Charlie Chaplin craze in America at this time where everyone's you know, going crazy over Charlie Chaplin and how he's so popular and, and motor cars. I mean, so America is changing at this time. I mean, so I think it's, it's, it's a depiction of an America that's moving into, the, into, into modernism. Um, what I thought was, it, what I learned in this book, I would, some things I always think of as being the 1920s were already starting in the teens like women smoking, like we, we all associate that with the flappers, but you, you can see at this time, there's all kinds of discussion about women smoking, women wearing clothing that's too short, women wearing bathing suits that are too short. So these things that we, we traditionally associate with the post-war era are actually the roots. You can see the roots of them uh, in, in, in the teens in, in this era as well.
2: couldn't agree more, I couldn't agree more. And I think uh, teaching the this period is really complex you know trying to grapple with the socio-cultural changes as well as then teaching you know major military history you know of World War 1 the political and diplomatic history of it as well it's a it, there's a lot there to contemplate you know no, no less so in our own age but World War 1 is really this looming moment in so many ways and when i teach World War 1 to students one of the most fraught questions is why the united states got involved and we talked a little bit about that already but your book does a lot to explain the the laws that are associated with neutrality, the economics behind the decision, and and some of the security threats as well. And so I was just wondering if I was to ask you to say to my students, you know, what dragged Wilson in? What got the United States involved in the war? What would you tell them?
1: I mean, I really believe Wilson wanted to avoid war up until early 1917, and I think if there was any way he could have continued to keep us out, he would have. Although I think it's even possible he could have kept us out, I'll get to that in a second. But I think the big, the big decision was the Germans in early 1917 saying, okay, well, it uh, looks like there's not gonna be any peace movement that's gonna work. You know, Wilson had tried his peace move, it didn't work, the Germans had floated their own little half-hearted thing, it didn't work either. So they said we're gonna we have to go for broke we ha- we have to win the war now we can't win a long war so how do we win the war now we unleash our submarines to their full capacity we had pulled back but now we're not gonna pull back yes it will bring the Americans into the war but so what because by the time they get a, a, a troops over we'll have we'll have starved the British out and the war will be over and the Kaiser will march merrily down the road well, you know that, that was kind of the simplistic view that I think the military had at the time that we can win this war this year in 1917. So, when Wilson is informed of that—that—that unrestricted uh, submarine warfare is, is coming back in February 1917—that's a very important uh, marker, and he immediately severs ties with the Germans. Um, he, I think, still hoped that they would behave because they had behaved in the past to prevent us from going to war. But it's clear that they're—they're they're not going to stop. They're going to sink ships at this point, so that's very important. Um, the other factor, I think, is the Zerman telegram. Uh, when, the, you know, for your listeners, you're not aware, when the, uh, in the middle of this decision being made for the unrestricted submarine warfare, um, you know, someone in Berlin accomplished this scheme or resurrected the scheme about, let's extend a ladder to Mexico and say, uh, listen, if you guys tie up uh, forces on the American, American-Mexican border, we'll give you a chance to win back territory you lost in the Mexican war, like Arizona, and New Mexico and Nevada, and all these things like that. It was a a crazy scheme. And I mentioned in the book that that it's amazing that someone didn't stop it. Uh, Later on, some of the higher-ups in in Berlin said they didn't even know about it, kind of just made it through. But Zimmerman's name was on it. He was a foreign secretary. His name was on it. Uh, It got intercepted by the British, and then they turned it over to the Americans. And then when when it was turned over to Wilson and the they leaked it to the public and that got the public worked up too for a while. But I think it's overstated that Zimmerman Telegram dragged us into war. because It, it did, but it did get people worked up uh, quite a bit. So Zimmerman Telegram, plus the return of unrestricted submarine warfare, plus some sinkings of American ships in March, I think all those pushed Wilson. But I think the biggest factor was something I alluded to earlier, where Wilson felt if America or me personally is going to have any influence in the peace process, we have to be involved in this war. Uh, And that's one example where Roosevelt said that in 1914. He he kind of sneeringly said it. He said, Wilson thinks that that European countries who have shed millions of dollars, billions of dollars in, in blood and treasure are going to come to the United States and say, Help us make peace. He's crazy. And I think Wilson finally got that, that of course we have to be involved in this war if I'm going to help to remake Europe and the world after the war. So I think that was a very, very strong motivating factor. But if Wilson really wanted to stay out in in the spring of 1917, I think he could have. I think the public was not clamoring so much for war. Um, Even the vote in Congress was 372 to 50, I think, something like that. And people say if it had been a, a, a secret ballot, it would have been a lot closer than that even. A lot of congressmen just felt they had to go along with it, but their constituents were by no means demanding it.
2: I think that's one of the most interesting historiographical questions here, because in some ways your book, well, your book does a great job of showing that there is this reluctance. And that's something that I think we've we've had a certain degree of consensus on over the years that, you know, at least politically speaking, there wasn't a, a clamor for war, certainly not like there was in the previous war in 1898. Uh, there was there was a there was a reluctance to get involved, but the public. It always bothered me what the public thought because we. It's hard to get an understanding of what the public thought, and then you've got people like Theodore Roosevelt who are sabering, you know, rattling sabers and 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 really calling for war. Um, so I just wondered what you thought about how divided the American public was at the time between Roosevelt's calls for war and Wilson's policy, or you could add Adams' pacifism in there as well. Where does the public fall within that triangle?
1: I think the public was was fairly ambivalent in April 1917. And there's some evidence of it where, where uh you know there's you know there's attempts to go through kind of America at that time. I think Ray Standard Baker went through went through various parts of the United States. And was looking for you know what's the feeling in the country and it was sort of like well okay I guess we have to go but it wasn't like rah 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 rah, rah until then, I think the whole propaganda machine gets up and up and rolling uh within a few months and then I think people are yes crush the kaiser uh war to end all wars but I think initially Americans were like well, and, and the funny thing is which I was surprised reading this book that a lot of people believed that even if we went to war we weren't going to send troops you know that was that was a that was when that was a shock up until until Wilson made the speech uh, in April 1917. I think I was like, okay, we we might go to war, but maybe we'll don't we do any more than you know I don't know we'll convoy British ships or whatever, or we'll we'll, we'll give them arms, or we're not going to send troops. That's crazy. Uh, so I think that was that was also a little bit of a surprise to too much of the American public. Um, yeah, you know, the the push for war and the support of the Allies was always strongest on the East Coast because you had that connection. I think when you start getting to the Midwest and, and the Far West, I think the the, the interest uh, as far as going to war was was much less. Um, you know, a lot of pacifists though. This is very something Adams was was very disenchanted by. A lot of her friends jumped the the pacifist movement and you know supported the government. You know, she never she 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 didn't not support the government, but she never supported the war. Uh, during the war, she went and worked for the Food Administration, which was sort of a, a non-military thing to do. Uh, but she really had a tough time because a lot of people thought she was some sort of seditious individual and, you know, should be basically sent to Germany or something because she was a, a traitor.
2: This trip to Europe during the war seems to me to be one of the bravest moments in the whole story because because she's she's going into a war zone. I mean, you know, the even putting the lettering up on the side of the boat, you know, as you describe that, to, to, to make everyone aware that this is a... A peace trip. Um, we talk about patriarchy a lot today, and Adams's peace work shows how men really thwarted women's ideas, uh, be it the male-dominated culture, the majority male media at the time, or the majority male diplomatic corps. How is it that Adams perseveres and sort of punches through the patriarchy?
1: That's a that's a really good good point about that. Something I didn't. I probably should have touched on more in the book. Uh, Certainly, the, the, the diplomatic corps, the male diplomatic corps was, was extremely condescending uh, to, to Jane Adams and, and any of these women uh, who, were, who were deigning to, to, to try to uh, take on activities that should be handled by professional diplomats and professional male diplomats, of course. I think was, there was a lot of condescension there. Walter Hines Page in London made some, some remarks about of the daughters of the Dove of Peace, who do they think they are. And I think the male press as well. There was, there's, there's just tons of editorial. Adams subscribed to a clipping service, uh, which you may have run into in your own research where you know they, they, they would, they'd just hire someone to clip every mention of their name. So Adams, every time her name was mentioned, you have these thousands of clippings. Uh, so you can see all these editorials about Adams from these male editorialists, you know, male editors you know, scorning her in this horrible language of, you know, she's a crack-brain old spinster, you know, how dare she, she go to Europe and how dare she talk about men having the courage of male soldiers. And so, yeah, there was a, a lot of, uh, of sexism at that time. I think she was used to it, which is why she was able to, to get through it. I think she was, she couldn't have gotten to the place she was as, as, as a figure and a dominant individual um, had she been someone who had, had crawled up and died at in response to these kind of criticisms. She got a lot of criticism, even for getting involved in politics. That was not a womanly thing to do. They said, you know, you're okay if you're doing social work, Jane Adams, but you have no business involving yourself with the progressive party. You should stay out of that. And then when she starts getting involved in the war and going to talk to leaders of state, heads of state, that in itself is unacceptable to many Americans.
2: Yeah, I, I what that's one of the things that really I think spoke to me in the book was it, it does come through. I think you're underselling the work that you've done. I think the patriarchy really does come through, especially that media and diplomatic core. Um, the other thing that comes through is I sort of I'll pose this as a question, but the end of pacifism, you know, the the war and and Adams's uh, uh, role as the sort of head of the pacifist movement, if 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 there could be a head of a pacifist movement. She becomes very unpopular by the 1920s. I mean, Andrew Carnegie is dead by 1919. You know, there's still peace conferences. There's still treaties. But Adams's vision for world peace seems diminished. Is that a fair assessment?
1: Yeah, she has a tough time in the 20s, I think, because there is a conservative backlash in the 20s, in in the United States, particularly. Uh, And Hoover, Jager Hoover, not, not Herbert Hoover. Uh, J Edgar Hoover has her under surveillance at times in, in, in the 1920s, and they're going to some of the meetings and taking down all everything she's saying. And you have the ROTC uh, saying uh, Jane Addams is the most dangerous woman in America. This is a woman by this point who's in, in her 60s, pushing 70s, and she sees this as this, this figure whose whose views are threatening because she had not kind of had bought the whole war line hook line and sinker. Uh, so she has a t- t- difficult time in the 20s. I think by the early 30s, when Americans were having a whole reconsideration of World War One in the sense that, boy, this was a big mistake for us, I think that's when the attitudes towards her change, uh, such that she becomes a beloved figure late in life, she wins the Nobel Peace Prize. And uh, I think by that point, everything has flipped around where she goes from being as if she'd been a beloved figure, then a very hated figure almost, and then a beloved figure again late in life uh, before her death
2: also does a great job of putting ambassadors in the story. You mentioned some of them already. You mentioned Walter Heinz Page, for example, but also foreign ambassadors, not just American ambassadors going abroad, but the French ambassador to the United States, Jules Jusseran, uh, the German ambassador, uh, Johann Heinrich von Bernstorff, All of these uh, uh, play a supporting role. How do you think that they are different from previous generations and maybe even later generations. And how did they work for their nation's interests in a way that that that
1: wasn't always the case, really, was it? I think Bernstorff is the is the most important figure as far as the diplomats in the book, because he's someone who, who I think he understood America fairly well. He had married an American born woman. Uh, I think he actually liked America. And he realized early on that the United States had to be kept out of this war. Otherwise, Germany was doomed. Unfortunately, the guys back in Berlin don't listen to him, and and he he's constantly trying to like you know you have to understand this country has great resources you know you, we we have to pacify them and they they kind of blow him off. There's, there's constant back and forth between Bernstorff and the and, and the Berlin uh, uh, leadership, trying for him trying to get them to understand that this is the most important. You know, country right now in the world is American and our fate basically turns on us. So Berto's a really he's an interesting guy uh, also I mentioned but he's carrying on an affair with an American woman at the time which is, which shows up in these wiretaps. I never knew there were wiretaps in 1915 but the Wilson administration was conducting wiretaps and these transcripts have survived. I was able to dig them dig them out um, uh, and they they're quite interesting to read all these you know they were, Several of the German embassy, members of the German embassy were having affairs with American women. All this is caught on, on these wiretaps. So it it was surprising to me. Would you have known that they were doing wiretaps at that, that time? I didn't think it was even possible in, in 1915 to do wiretaps. It must have been something very, very crude. Uh, but yes, they're 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 all there and they're all transcribed. I mean, they were listening, listening to all these phone conversations and uh, and yes, it's just and funny that Burnsov had no idea because Bernsov was like saying, Oh, the telephone's dangerous right now. And then he would he would go talk to his his lover about this, that, and the other thing. But he so he never it never dawned on him that he was possibly being tapped. Um, but yeah, I think he's an interesting figure, and I think he was very sympathetic to the American cause. And he was someone who later on was, was disgusted by Nazism and he fled the country in in, in, in the 30s and moved moved out uh, when Hitler came to power. So I think he's he's a fairly sympathetic figure, although one of his big flaws was that he was kind of, hit, he was involved in some of the espionage that was going on in this country during the war as well, uh, where the Germans were trying to disrupt any kind of shipments of munitions to uh, the allies during the period before we were involved in the war. So that's a whole other subject.
2: The ambassadors are just re- really colorful. I think it's, it was also a prerequisite to have an American wipe in order for you to succeed
1: as a- I, I think so too. I think so too.
2: So th- there's some great stories there too. And, uh, I mean, look, I could ask you a lot more about Roosevelt being seditious. I could ask you a lot more about Woodrow Wilson being thrust into a sort of role as a chief diplomat when he really was a domestic politician. But I'd like to draw some parallels between the book and today. And I don't want to necessarily draw us to the war in Europe now, the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, but it's hard not to think about that. Um, how, so how has the legacy of World War I affected our thinking about foreign affairs and who do you think of these three characters that you've got in the book? Come out the other side looking better or worse in contemporary, you know, to contemporary viewers?
1: I think the issue in World War One, which is still very relevant today, is what do we do when we, as a nation, uh, see another country being, you know, invaded by a predatory power, and does it affect us? And do we what do we stand on the sidelines? Uh, does it affect our national security if we don't do anything? Uh, how much will the American public stand and put up with one way or the other? I think those are the decisions of of America of foreign policy in 1914 and, and today. I mentioned to you before we got on that I, I've i done an, an op-ed about this very issue, about the parallels between the invasion of, of Belgium in 1914 uh, and the invasion of Ukraine in, in 2022, and Wilson and Joe Biden both kind of facing the same issue of How do we confront this terrible human tragedy uh, as a nation? And what is the the proper course? And and whatever course I pursue as president may disrupt things further. I mean, I think that's something that Wilson had to really contend with. I think Biden had to contend with as well. As far as who's who's the most correct, I think I tend to think in some ways Roosevelt was the most was the most realistic uh, of of the three. Um, I think Roosevelt did have this belief that America cannot do anything positive around the globe, unless we have a sufficient enough military. Uh, we need, need to have might. Might does make right to a certain degree. Uh, he, there's a quote in a book where, where Roosevelt said, there are certain countries that will, 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 will simply misbehave unless there's someone to stop them, You know, either militarily or by other means. I think Wilson perhaps was, was maybe uh, not, I think Wilson was late to coming to that view. I think later on, he did, he did understand that uh, there is a need for America to have a decent sized military. Because in 1914, we had this tiny army of like 100,000 people. We couldn't even barely defend our, defend the, the border of Mexico. So uh, Roosevelt I think was very ahead in that sense of saying we need to prepare and we need to be, if we are be great as a nation and be able to assist other nations, we need to be able to have a sufficient military apparatus.
2: What about the other two? How do they fare in terms of historical legacy in your mind? I mean, Jane Addams, obviously as a a leading female figure of the era, has certain gravitas nowadays. We've already talked about patriarchy. And Wilson, I mean, we know that his name has come off Princeton Buildings now because of his uh, views uh, on race. Uh, But how do they fare in terms of how we think about foreign affairs and American intervention?
1: Well, I'll say about Adams, I think as far as T- setting aside foreign affairs, I think she's by far the, the most modern of the three in her views on, on, on race and women and and, and uh, labor, all sorts of things. She's so far ahead of her time in that regard. So I think she probably is, would be the most admired in the 21st century. Um, I think she's. I think in some ways she's she's uh, relevant as far as foreign policy is concerned. So I think her her, her basic theme was. You know, we shouldn't be blowing each other up in the 20th century when we have t- differences. Uh, there's got to be other ways. There's got to be some sort of instruments, uh, you know, other nations, some sort of you know uh, ways to where countries can can, can talk uh, without killing one another or using other means to prevent these kinds of of incredibly bloody wars. So I think in that regard, she was correct. And of course, we later you know, got the League of Nations, which was not quite successful, then the United Nations, which I think was better, although people are starting to question the United Nations with what's going on in Ukraine right now. But I think her, her idea that there's there's got to be ways, civilized ways to prevent war, uh, and that with the more global community being able to do this, I think she was very important in those regards. And I think Wilson, too. Uh, the same thing. I think certainly, you know, League of Nations was, 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 was a wonderful thing had it panned out the way he had it intended to pan out. Uh, and that was, of course, not all his fault. Um, but I think what Wilson would be doing today is interesting to consider. You know, how would he be reacting to this? And I think the difference today, I think Wilson, which he didn't have during World War One, or maybe, he didn't have all these countries behind him who were going to work together. Whereas today we are having, I think Russia's facing the United opposition of the world almost right now with maybe a couple exceptions. But I think that's something that, um, you know, when Wilson was faced with some of these issues in 1914, 15, he was sort of by himself, the United States was by itself, neutral, uh, and he had to arrive at these, these these moves himself.
2: Sounds like the way you're talking, there's a follow-up book on Versailles in the, the early 1920s, possibly, but, but maybe not. What's the next project?
1: Uh, I haven't really, that's, that's a good idea. I haven't even thought about that one. I've been so busy promoting the book right now, I haven't really had a chance to to come up with something. Uh, something I'll probably in a few months I'll start thinking more seriously about another book. But this this book was a, was a lot of work, as you you can imagine. It, it probably took almost four or five years start to finish. So, uh, frankly, I need a break <laughs> before before I start on something else. Um, you know, the rewards are slim, as you know, when you write these books. So it's you know you spend so much time writing a book and. Uh, you know, it's, but it, it's, it's certainly it's certainly a, um, a pleasure when it does come out and people read it and people enjoy it.
2: You are again being very modest because the rewards from this book for me were immense. I mean, I think that not only in terms of the. The the advantage that I got around personalities that I thought I knew exceptionally well, but got to know even better, is just one uh, one bit of it. But I know that students will be really interested in reading this, you know, all over the world to get a better sense of World War One and the the diplomacy that was so central to, and the personal diplomacy that was so central to how the the war played out and American intervention beca- became possible. So, look, Neil, thanks very much for 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 sharing. And uh, and I would encourage people to go out and, and, and read.
1: Well, thank you very much. It's very kind of you. I hope people do enjoy the book.
2: Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickculinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen, because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode.